Thank you. Um, it's a wonderful privilege for my family and I to be here with you this morning. Um, we've heard about this church. Um, it was only, as you mentioned this morning, uh, as you mentioned, Marco, that he had said to me at the Shepherds Conference at the beginning of this year, hey, you've got to go and visit a friend of mine in Gainesville. He's so close. Yes. And uh, so I only connected the dots when you asked me about it. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, it's a privilege. And, uh, Sorry. Is it not turned on? What did I switch on? Is it ticking? Um, so it is it is a privilege and uh, especially on my daughter's birthday pray that the butterflies will heed the Lord's command and land on her hand a little later that's uh, what we're going to try and do Um, let's begin uh, with a word of prayer Father Uh, Thank you for your word, uh, even as we've read in in Psalm 119 this morning. Um, Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Uh, We have no way of knowing you apart from your word. And so, Father, we are grateful that you have faithfully preserved your word through the ages so that we can be sitting here this morning free to open your word, free to feed upon your word, Uh, We know that it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Father, we pray that you feed us here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Uh, It's a privilege, as I've said already, to be here. I'm honored to be in a pulpit where there's a a lay pastor that uh, is carrying a unique burden. And uh, the mere fact that you've invited us to be here um, as seminary students to to come and bear some of that burden means you care for him, you love him. Uh, but uh, I'm very thankful just to hear of, of, of the burden that he carries. Uh, it's a conviction of mine as I, as I wade those territories of a seminary and, and work uh, to hear of Paul's burden for the church, not to be a burden on them. And so he worked day and night. And uh, so for the period that the Lord would have you, uh, do this, Brandon. I'm just uh, appreciative of that effort, and I'll be praying for you and, and just thanking the Lord for the call on your life. I know you've already testified to His strength and His mercies upon you already, and uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord will do in and through this ministry. So uh, we'll be thinking of you and praying for you. I believe you've all met um, my Welsh friend, also a funny accent, Greg Jones. I think he's been here a few times, and. Uh, He's also a fellow rugby-mad enthusiast. Um, It wasn't so long ago after seminary class that Greg and I worked one another up to agree to play in an old boys rugby game in Jacksonville. At the stage that we had done this, you would not have been able to fault our enthusiasm, our passion, and our motivation. The common excitement was tangible. I don't know if it was when he got home to his wife Tammy and in whom wisdom prevailed or if the excuse that he gave me was genuine that he had planned a weekend away over that particular weekend. Uh, All I know is that I was relieved and I could tell from the look on his face he was relieved too that we we wouldn't be playing. (laughs) You see, the worst thing that you could do at my age is play a rugby game unfit, untrained, on a regular seafood diet, you know, that kind of diet. 
No matter how motivated you are, it's simply madness. And for those of you that don't know, rugby is like football only for real men. <laughs> you see, we had the motivation, but we lacked the self-discipline of regular training. On the other hand, uh, I read an article recently on those athletes, child prodigies who are forced to train regularly. But when they are older, they lack the motivation to follow through. To succeed as an athlete, you need both strong discipline and a lot of motivation. A study that I read recently uh, researched the correlation between motivation and self-discipline. It studied athletes from the early ages to the elite level. Both world championship and Olympic medal winners were interviewed. The study looked at how different forms of motivation influenced the athletes. For example, prize money, uh, the joy of doing sports, the level of discipline needed in regards to their daily exercise routines. I quote, one key element is the ability to resist temptation. When you get home from a long day of school, do you lay down or do you go out for the planned training session? According to the findings, in the short term, athletes needed to be very disciplined to stay motivated. In the long term, it was motivation that made it easier to remain disciplined. The study looked at what it called the intrinsic and extrinsic motivating factors. An example of extrinsic motivation would be their earnings or the endorsements they received or the prize money, the recognition perhaps. But the intrinsic motivation would be the joy of being an athlete. So according to the results, athletes are more prone to be burnt out even if they are driven only by extrinsic motivation factors. And if they had the intrinsic too, they were able to endure and persevere for longer. The article finishes off by saying these are new and exciting findings. Well, they may be exciting, but as we will find out this morning, they're not so new. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 7 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, from verse 7 to 10. This is a letter to a pastor of a church plant. There were challenges, which we'll mention in a few minutes, but hopefully this will encourage you, it encourage your pastor, it'll encourage your elders as to what's needed to endure a church plant and the days ahead. Verse 7 begins with, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The Apostle Paul often used 
sports illustrations to explain spiritual realities. And it's no surprise that when Paul wants to explain to Timothy what it is to be a good servant of Christ, needing to explain the hard yards of the self-control and the discipline that's required, he turns to sport for that word picture in Timothy's mind. Our text this morning is tremendously helpful on addressing the motivations necessary to be self-disciplined, especially when times are tough. As Paul writes to Timothy, young Timothy had problems within the church that were threatening to submerge him. He had unqualified elders and deacons. He had aggressive women who were overstepping their bounds in ministry within the church. He had the neglect of the care of widows. There were growing heresies of Gnosticism and asceticism encroaching on the life of the church. Layer upon layer of carnality was threatening to suffocate Timothy as he found himself in this challenging ministry situation. In the midst of this turmoil, Paul says to Timothy, first and foremost, address the spiritual condition of your soul. Be spiritually fit. If you need a title this morning, that's it. Spiritual CrossFit. Our outline this morning will split the text into two sections, verses 7 and 8. The extrinsic motivating factors. And verses 9 to 10, the intrinsic motivating factors. We will see Paul makes the case to Timothy that both the extrinsic and the intrinsic motivating factors are vital if we are to grow spiritually and if we are to endure. The extrinsic motivation, we're going to look at three of them, the instructions, the intention, and the incentives. Firstly then, the instructions. Look at how our text begins. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. This is the first of those external factors outside of us, pushing us to do better and to be better. We need this push. You know what it is to have a training partner that uh, knows what they're doing. They push you on and they spur you on to press through the pain and, and to do more. When your mind is saying no and your body is saying no, they help to motivate you to continue. Paul begins his training session with what not to do. I remember I had a training partner. He was much older than me, but much fitter and much stronger. And I used to say to him, I'm battling to lose weight. And he used to say to me sarcastically, well, it's easy. Just wire your jaw shut. Stop eating that junk food. In a sense, this is what Paul tells Timothy. The, the idea is to avoid junk food. Watch what you put in your body. Watch what you allow in your ear gate, so to speak. What ideas are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Who's speaking into your life? Paul gives Timothy several commands or instructions here in these verses, as well as to the one, the one prior to this in verse 6. Look at what he says there. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained, the same word we have in verse 7, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. In other words, train yourself in these words of the faith and of, of good doctrine. That's what you've listened to. That's what you've obeyed. Keep doing so. That's a good workout. This should be the regular routine for Christians. We follow instructions. We submit to authority. We follow commands. Our confession is that of the psalmist that 
His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. We know we are blind without the right instructions. We need direction. In humility, we confess with the Ethiopian eunuch, how can we understand unless someone explains it to us? We need coaching. We need the right help. We need the right coaches. And we need the right teachers to show us the way. The put-offs here are that we don't follow invented stories. We don't follow untrue fables. We don't even follow historic traditions like some of the false teachers that Timothy was contending with here in our text. However, our faith is rooted in historical accuracy. It reminds me of Vodi Bachum's sermon, Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. Has anyone heard that sermon before? If you haven't, I'd really recommend you do so. He obviously, um, dealing with uh, a lot of students and, and student council ministries, often comes across those lecturers who are questioning their students, well, why do you believe the Bible? Why is that the authority? He, he pleads with his students, please don't answer one of two ways. Please don't answer it's because it was the way you were raised. Please don't answer, I've tried it and it works for me. There are many religions that can try and make that claim. He says both answers fall apart under the harsh light of logic. I love how he answers the question, why I choose to believe the Bible? It's because the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim their writings to be divine rather than human in origin. May that be our answer when someone asks us why we believe the Bible. There's substance there. The Mormon missionaries have stopped knocking on my door since I heard that sermon. They can't answer the question. I asked them, why is this book as authoritative as the Bible? You say you believe the Bible. Why are you putting your book in the same light as, as my Bible? Well, because I've prayed about it. I have an inner peace about it. And then I asked them, well, what happens if the Jehovah's Witnesses say the same? What about the Muslims who say the same? And they have no answer. Our instructions are God-sent. We believe the Word of God is what the Thessalonians believed it was, the Word of God, and they followed them. So in order to train well, in order to be trained well, we have to follow the words of the faith and the good doctrine that we have received. Let's look more closely at this instruction. Look there in the second part of verse 7. The word train, train yourself. Literally to exercise yourself, to take yourself to the gym. This word in the Greek is where we get the word gymnasium from. It means to strip down, to, to go to the gym. It's an athletic term expressing the rigorous self-sacrificing effort that an athlete undergoes. There are times where as spiritual athletes, we need to go somewhere special for special training, using special equipment and tools and special trainers who can help us. Notice Paul doesn't just say to Timothy, rather be godly. He says, train yourself for godliness. In other words, put the building blocks in place. Be deliberate. Exhaust yourself. Sweat it out. Brothers and sisters, what exercises do you need to work on in the good doctrine and the words of the faith? In prayer and fellowship, do you need to 
uh, consider the next time at the Lord's table to remember what He has done to redeem you to Himself. Remember the worthiness of the gospel call on your life and train yourself in godliness. Remember the temper of the early church, Acts 2.42, they continued daily in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, prayer and fellowship, every single day. Do you regularly go to the spiritual gym that specializes in character training? Are you in the fellowship and if you're there, are you there for a workout? Paul has said to Timothy, put these things before the brothers in verse 6. He knows Timothy will be in fellowship. Follow the instruction, he says to them. In effect, encourage one another while it's called today so that your hearts will not be hardened due to the deceitfulness of sin. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Be here, be present, but come for a workout. Come to grow. The word train here is in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's deliberate. It's non-passive. You must expend energy in order to have it. If you were once fit like I once was, you have to maintain that fitness. You have to keep working out to retain that fitness. And the same thing spiritually. It's ongoing. And it applies to all young people, old people, husbands, wives, pastors, elders, church members. All of us are to train ourselves. Notice the singular sense of Paul's instruction. It's specific. Train yourself. No one can do this for you in this sense. Pastor Brandon can't train you for godliness in this sense. He can instruct, he can encourage, he can exhort, he can pray for you, he can remind you. But you have to take personal responsibility to sweat it out, to put in the hard yards, to exhaust yourself to get fit spiritually. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your friends can't work out on your behalf. You have to take responsibility. You have to put plans in place. You have to be deliberate. You have to know who to go to. You have to know where to go. You have to ask the right people for help. You have to be able to evaluate yourself to see where you're truly at. I fear a lot of us can be spiritual couch potatoes at times. Spiritually out of breath. Spiritually out of shape. Spiritually flabby, spiritually obese, never working out, or at least very rarely, in the Word of God. Think about it. No one would dare arrive at the Olympic Games untrained. But we do that spiritually all the time. We haven't fed upon the Word, and when we go through trial, we wonder why we can't stand. We fed upon maybe the spiritual junk food of the world, and when we really need to stand upon truth, there's nothing there to help us endure. Some people attend church like some specialist gym pretenders, just going in to take a selfie, have a smoothie, say hi to some friends, and then they're gone. There's no working out, there's no sweat, and therefore there's no growth. If you truly recognize how unfit you are spiritually, you'll take note of all the church puts on in the week. For the ministry of the word, fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. If you're feeling spiritually flabby as we speak, and you're just committed to attend those events, and you come diligently, prayerfully, I would guarantee you, you would grow spiritually. Your desire for worship would increase. 
You would be more earnest in your prayer and you would want to dive into the word more. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Galatians 6 verse 8 to 9, For the one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now I'm not suggesting that life isn't busy, that there aren't other priorities outside of the church. I know we're all busy. I know we can't always make it. But if you recognize the true condition of your soul, your confession will be that of Peter's. Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as often as you can, be here. The words of eternal life are served continually in the church. And my question to you would be, where else would you want to be? So we train ourselves for godliness. We have to follow the right instructions if we want to be spiritually fit. If we neglect finding the right instructions, we will be, as the writer of Hebrews says, unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since we are children, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. Sounds like a spiritual workout, doesn't it? Trained, continual practice to discern right from wrong. We have to grow to feed upon solid food. The words of the faith, the good doctrine Paul mentions to Timothy, and we have to be followers of that instruction. Then secondly, the intention. It's been said, if you aim for perfection, the worst you will hit is excellence. Everyone needs an aim for something. To compete, you need the right goals, not so. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. What is Paul's encouragement here to Timothy and by extension to us? We are to train ourselves for godliness. This is the purpose. Not only are we to train hard, to work hard, to strip off and exercise appropriately, but more specifically, we are to do all of these things for the purpose of our characters. That's the higher aim. This is the chief purpose. Here is the overarching goal of the workout. This, in fact, is the measurement, the yardstick we are to use to determine if we are training appropriately. It's godliness. In fact, it's fair to say from this passage, if there's no training, there will be no godliness. Our growth in godliness will be determined by our willingness to go into the gym, our willingness to be trained by the right teachers, our working out in the Word of God, our working out in prayer, our encouragement of one another. This is what inevitably leads to godliness. Godliness is defined as belief in God, a reverence for His character and laws, a Godward attitude, a life marked by obedience and a love of God. The idea of godliness is communion with God, a sincere devotion, a life that honors God. It's a God-centered life. Notice the purpose of training is not to be recognized. It's not to impress others. It's not to feel better about yourself. It's not to improve the content 
of our social media feeds. The training Paul encourages is that of feeding upon the word, avoiding junk food, avoiding the myths of the world and old wives' tales, and working diligently in prayer and in the fellowship so that our characters would be transformed to be godly. This word godliness has meaning to Paul. He mentions this virtue several times in his letters. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 he says we are to pray for all people, kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He says to Timothy in chapter 3 verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He continues, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is part of an early church hymn summarizing the truth of the gospel. Not only is godliness a virtue that we strive for and the purpose for which we train, but godliness was manifested in the flesh, an example that we are to follow Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul continues on this theme of godliness in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, The widow's children and grandchildren are to learn to show godliness to their own households by providing for them as this is pleasing in the Lord's eyes. You see, godliness has a twin whose name is good doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3 to 4 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, It does not agree with the sound sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He places a premium on godliness. Verse 5 of the same text there says, They are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is the measurement of if we've truly received the right teaching. Paul stresses this again to Titus. In Titus 1 verse 1 he says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't manufacture true godliness. It is granted through the following of good teaching. It is always linked to the knowledge of the truth. To show you more of what I mean, turn with me to Peter, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Notice what Peter says there. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We are to train ourselves diligently in the truth by following the right instructions given to us by God. This will create godliness in our lives, a true character change by the power that God grants to us. It only comes through a true knowledge of Christ, an accurate knowledge. And this is how God grants us power for life and godliness, all things pertaining to life 
and godliness. So we've seen the instructions, the intention. Now third, the incentives. Look there again back in our text, 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 7 to 10. We're in verse 8 now. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Paul compares three realities, physical versus spiritual, the little value or value in every way, and then promise for the present life and the life to come, longevity. Paul doesn't disqualify bodily exercise. He doesn't deny the benefit of physical exercise. He's not encouraging you to delete your CrossFit Instagram montage just yet. There is value. There's some value in bodily training. But compared to the spiritual value of godliness and believing in the promises of God, nothing compares. Paul calls for a side-by-side comparison here. Look at the prize money he's saying. Look at the financial comparison. Be discerning here, believer. Do the sums. Why would you settle for something of little value when God has granted you power to experience value in every way? And then further to this, Paul says, why enjoy value in every way just in this life when you can experience this for eternity? Every good athlete, every good businessman or Christian needs to be an evaluator. Can you measure value? Can you do the math? Talk to me about your analytics. Can you approve of the things that are excellent rather than the things that are of little value? As Christians, we're not meant to be motivated by how close we can walk to the world and still call ourselves Christians. We are meant to be motivated by the things that are most excellent. This is Paul's prayer to the Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, he says the following, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How did he want their love to abound? He continues, With knowledge and all discernment. This is the kind of love that Paul calls for. Why does he call for that kind of love? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's godliness. So we train hard. We agonize by following the right instructions in the good doctrines, the words of the faith. We do so for the intention of godliness, being granted the incentives of godliness in every way, now and forevermore, and then we burn out. That's right. At this point, if you consider the extrinsic motivation factors only, you could potentially burn out. It's possible to train hard to pursue godliness, to be motivated by pursuing the promises of a godly character, and then also be a flaming legalist. It's possible to be self-righteous even in those approaches. To be a conceited fool or to simply burn out because you're trying all of this in the flesh. Without the intrinsic motivating factors, you run these risks. If we focus only on the external factors and allow these to motivate us alone, it could be insufficient. Something more needs to drive us if we are to endure and grow well spiritually. Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop here 
with just the extrinsic only. He opens up his own proven testimony. He gives us a glimpse into his own redeemed heart that is not yet perfected, but presses on towards that upward call in Christ Jesus. We've seen the instructions, the intention, the incentives, and now we will see the conviction and confidence that Paul had. In one word we could say faith, but Paul doesn't use one word, and so we won't either. Verse 9 talks about Paul's conviction. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The conviction of things not seen, but heard. We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It was Christ that said to his disciples in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The saying is trustworthy. We've heard this statement before. It's very familiar. In chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseerful, he desires a noble task. Trustworthy statement. 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. He continues in Titus. Titus 3 verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This saying, the saying is trustworthy, means these are common statements, familiar to the church. They summarized key doctrines. They uh, deserved full acceptance. This is what added the emphasis. The verse refers back to the promises listed before rather than the statements to follow. The promises of God that godliness is of value in every way and it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. These statements were meant to be memorized. They're meant to be understood as fundamental. They are meant to be bound around your neck, so to speak. They are the muscle memory for you, just like when you practice key movements and and you build memory parts for your muscles and tendons so that you can build strength and lift more weights. This is what scripture memory should be for us. Not so that we can win a recital contest, but that these convictions, these beliefs in the promises of God would be the substance of the things that we hope for. Remember what Paul said to the Thessalonian church in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 and 5, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The gospel and the good doctrine and the words of the faith, and more particularly in this context, the promises of God are to be received and accepted as trustworthy statements deserving of full acceptance. Another word for this is conviction. We're all familiar with that famous Uh, Hebrews passage 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old received their commendation. Old Testament saints 
were saved this way by placing their hope in the future promises of God that they were convicted to fully accept as trustworthy. And that's the same way we are saved. Believer, are you here today by conviction? Are those convictions regarding the promises of God or is something else motivating you? Then secondly, confidence. Look there in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Our hope is assured because of where it's set. It's not in ourselves or in our abilities. Paul says to the Corinthian church, such is our confidence through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our confidence is the hope we have set on the living God. Every athlete knows that confidence is a massive factor in performance. Except the Christian's confidence is not in himself. It's in another. It's in the living God. Some versions translate that word strive to suffer. You mentioned it this morning, Jonathan. It's not just for the elder to suffer. It's for every believer. So we are to know how to suffer well. If our eye is on the prize, we will work through our sufferings to endure in the hope of the glory of God. Romans is covered in this theme of hope and suffering. Romans 5 verse 2 to 4, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How similar is that to our passage this morning? Endurance, training, character, godliness, and hope. It's the same theme. Our hope is what drives us to endure in our struggle against sin. Longing for Christ to rescue us. We are trapped in this body of death and we look to the only one who can redeem us. Romans 8 Verse 22 to 25 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's only one way to sustain this hope. It's exactly what we've been speaking about the entire morning. Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Isn't this exactly what we've read in Psalm 119 today? Isn't that what the whole psalm is all about? 
the psalmist wrestling with the Lord in prayer about how much he needs the word. How much the statutes of God implore him to love the Lord more effectively. God is so good to us that as we pursue our hope in him, he gives us joy and peace. Sometimes we may think, but that's the hard way. That training means you have to sweat. Those difficult circumstances I, I have to face right now on my own because it's too difficult to go to the Word right now. And yet God promises in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How do we believe more? How do we have more faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We need to say with Jonathan Edwards, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So that everything that I look at will be in this day in light of that day. Paul says if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are most to be pitied. Think about that. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, in light of the resurrection. He says, if in Christ our hope is in this life only, we are to be most pitied. We are to be like those Old Testament saints who considered a future kingdom whose builder and maker is God. We've been speaking to fellow South Africans about moving country. We are just foreigners. It's more apparent to us because literally we're foreigners. But all of us are. We're just passing through. Our hope is in another life. And if we place our hope even in Christ in this life only, Paul says we are most to be pitied. This was his prayer to the believers in Ephesus, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called. Where is your confidence today? Is it in Christ the living God, our Savior, Turn with me quickly to 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3. I understand uh, we are running out of time, and so I'll do my best to wrap up quickly. The Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Spurgeon calls this the beatific vision. He says we will not see him as he was. We shall see him as he is, exalted in his glory. The head that was once crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. We shall see him not with a peasant's garb around him. We will see him wrapped with the empire of the universe upon his shoulder. No longer Christ the man of sorrows, the acquaintance of grief, but Christ the man God, radiant with splendor, engulfed with light, clothed with rainbows, girded with clouds, wrapped in lightnings, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. O glorious vision, he says. Is this your hope 
Is this what we long to see? Are we longing to see Christ, the man-God, radiant in splendor, in all His glory? We hope in Christ, the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now there's a small part at the end of uh, this verse here, which is for another sermon. It's one of those uh, wives ask your husband at home questions or or catch the pastor at lunch and uh, he can answer this for you. What does he mean? The savior of all people, especially those who believe. I can quickly tell you that it's not referring to universalism, that in the end love wins, everyone gets saved, no one goes to hell. That's wrong. Besides the fact that that's contradicted throughout scripture, it's contradicted here in our verse by the distinction, especially those who believe. Some believe it's referring to common grace salvation, that he's patient with all people. He hasn't wiped out the earth just yet. He's not slow in his promise to return, but he's, he's being patient with us all so that some will come to a knowledge of the truth. Some say that he's provided salvation for all, freely offered salvation to all, but some have rejected. He commonly offers rain, sunshine, breath to all, so it's all in the common grace sense. Some believe it's speaking of all kinds of people without distinction. This book, First um, Timothy, that we're in has many categories of people. Kings, men, women, overseers, husbands, wives, children, deacons, older men, older women, older widows, grandchildren, younger wives, slaves, masters, those that are rich in money, those are rich in works, good works. So there's reason to believe this could be referring to the fact that he saves all types of people. Um, we can't go much further than that, but... Uh, Brandon, have fun with that as I I leave. Uh, So in conclusion and in final application, firstly, follow the right instructions. Are there people in your life that can speak truth into your life, that can speak the good doctrine that they have followed? Number two, make sure that you know what the intention is for your training. Measure yourself by the right standard. Godliness is that standard. That's the aim, the worship, the reverence we have for God, the communion we have with Him, a God-honoring attitude. Thirdly, consider the incentives. Realize what's worth fighting for. What's most valuable? What's most profitable? What's eternal versus temporal? Measure these things. Take stock and strive for that which is most excellent. Fourth, live by conviction. Make sure that that conviction is grounded in good doctrine. The fundamentals of the faith, the gospel. Is this what drives you? Do you live by conviction? And then finally, set your hope on the living God. Is this your confidence? Is this where your hope lies? Or is it in the temporary benefits of this life only? Rather trust in the living God. Hope in Him. Long for His coming. Long for that day that when we see Him, we will be like Him. And then purify yourself in that hope. Train yourself for godliness to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this church. Thank You, Lord, that um, where You are building Your church, the gates of hell will not prevail. We thank You, Father, that 
if we are to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and follow you, we are to do what you do. And you have said in your word that you are praying constantly for us at the right hand of the Father, but also that you are building your church. And that's where we want to be involved in, Lord. That's the effort that we want to be involved with is is to build your church, to build your kingdom, to see your kingdom come. And so, Father, I pray that um, the very means that you use in order to build your church is your word, that you would help us to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. That, Lord, we would follow the good doctrine and the fundamentals, the gospel that we have heard. The, the very fact that we are included in your kingdom is because we heard the gospel of our salvation. That we would never drift away from the cries of Calvary. That we would always live this day in light of that day when we will see you again. That, Lord, we would purify ourselves as we hope in your return. As we realize that one day you will return to redeem us. And that, Father, while we are here, that we would understand that this life is but a a mist, a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. That we would busy ourselves with your kingdom work. That we would busy ourselves with the gospel, the words of the faith, the fundamentals of the faith. That we would consider these words to be trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That we would then strive and toil in the labors that you've given us, the good works you've prepared beforehand, so that we might walk in them to your glory and for the sake of your kingdom we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.